So Bjorn, where are you right now? Are you in New York? No, I'm in Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming. Is that home? Yeah, that's home. I'm in my hometown, Wilson, Wyoming. Well, it's dark outside now. Otherwise, I'll show you beautiful oh, mountains outside it's my window. everywhere. Yeah. When you say hometown, is that is that where you grew up? No, no, that's where I live yeah. now. I grew up in Sweden. Uh, that's nice. one year ago. I'm a citizen of the wonderful state of Wyoming. All right. Nice. I guess we always like to start with early days. We could talk about your upbringing. You know, you mentioned you grew up in Sweden. Um, tell us what your childhood was like and what you were kind of interested in. And uh, we'll go from there. Such a long time ago. I'm not sure I remember much of it. No, I, I grew up in, in, I was born in a town called Östersund, which is in the sort of geographical midpoint of Sweden. It's in all senses and purposes, it's way up north, way up north. And it's, uh, it's gorgeous, beautiful landscape, uh, very rural. Um, it's home to some of the best skiing in, in uh, Scandinavia. Um, so give you a little idea of maybe what it looks like, but very early my, parents moved to Stockholm. So I, you know, from I was three years old, I grew up in the, in Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden today. I don't, I don't know how many live there. The greater urban area, probably close to 2 million people. It's a bustling happening place. That's what I call my hometown. Uh, every time I go back there, I feel, you know, happy to be there. I feel it's, it's a very beautiful city. And in the summer, you have the archipelago with all the, it's an excellent place for, for sailing and boating and fishing. And in the winter, we go ice skating on the frozen lakes and, and uh, rivers and canals. It's beautiful, fun place, very happening, very dynamic. I lived there until I was 38, 39, when I moved to the U.S., I built a software company in Stockholm and uh, sold computer security solutions all over the world. And sold that in, 90, yeah, in 97 uh, and uh, moved to Boston to work with the new owners. I thought I'd give the U.S. a year to see, check it out, see what it's like. And uh, lo and behold, I met my future wife and the mother of my children there and life changed. Mm-hmm. Bjorn, you said that you lived in your hometown till about 38 years old. Uh, did you enjoy it there? Did you ever think that, you know, you would n- never leave or, you know, I, why yeah. ultimately? Yeah. No, I, I I thought I'd live there. Yeah. I mean, it's a very livable city. The quality of life there, I think, is pretty. It's it's up there in the top, uh, top cities. Yeah in my opinion, that I've seen in the world when I've traveled. And uh, I had no plans on moving. Uh, I mean, uh, it's fine. I traveled a lot. We're all Swedes, we travel, you know. It's something we have inherited from the Vikings, I guess. Uh, we, we travel the world. We spend time all over the place. Uh, but we tend to, most of us, uh, come back home after a few years abroad. But and you and you ended up launching only during that time, right? You were still there. So, so what happened here? My brother uh, uh, invented. It's his fault, right? He he came up with this wacky idea of milking oats. Who would have thought? Right? I mean, come on, can't do that, right? And for well, why? What's the other reason? <laughs> why would you do that? Uh, but he started. He's a professor in food chemistry at the Lund University, and he started playing around with with. Um, uh, milk alternatives and, and figuring out how you could make a better milk. And the background to that was that his, when he was a younger student, his prof- the professor he studied under was the guy that uh, earlier had discovered lactose intolerance. So you could say our, our academically he grew up in an environment where, where milk equals issues for some. And the more he studied, it turned out to be that he, milk equals issues for more and more, and today it actually equals a lot of issues for the planet. So, so um, he was dr- intrigued, I guess is the word, and curious, a curious scientist, uh, playing around with uh, how can I make a better milk? And we're now talking late 1980s, right? So, and as a university professor, you don't get much funding if you sit there and play around. So it took it. He relied on putting together a team of like-minded scientists and 
it tested uh, all kinds of uh, raw material and, and uh, landed quite quickly in Oates for many good reasons. By 94, he realized that he had something he could patent and, and uh, somewhere there in 94, 95, he actually formed a little company around it. No funding and really very little support from the world. One of his early friends and, and colleagues from the university at that time was a scientist, lead scientist, head of research for the largest dairy company in Sweden. So he invited him down to come and, you know, proud, come test, check out what I just did, what I right. cooked up in the lab. And the guy Bjorn, came down. What were, you, what were you doing at the time? So I was building a software company at that time. I I, uh, I graduated from uh, from uh, university uh, in uh, eighty in the mid eighties, and very quickly, uh, together with a couple of my buddies, started building a computer security company. And I ran sales and marketing for that for what turned out to be about ten years. And that took me all over the world, selling security solutions to governments, large companies large corporations, uh, banks. We did a lot with uh, uh, banks all over the world, which was quite exciting. And that's the company I sold in 97 uh, that subsequently took me to the so two things instrumental in my life with that transaction, right? First of all, I freed up some cash, which is always nice to have. And I started to look around me where to invest. And there was my brother sitting in his uh, little office trying to figure out what the heck to do with the oat milk. Um, so I decided to join him for a number of reasons and maybe come back to that. The other obviously uh, uh, important aspect of my, my move to the U.S. was what I said earlier, I, I met my future wife. So, so <clears throat> we settled when we started dating. So I joined him in 97, right? And at that time, uh, Oatly, the brand Oatly didn't exist. We were looking at, uh, well, I, what intrigued me, what uh, attracted me to the whole idea was that we were all sitting, you know, at home, uh, my family, uh, my parents, my other brothers, uh, and we were looking at this, you know, glass of milk. I wonder what the heck do you do with that? Because it tastes great. And my mother loved to cook with it and she baked bread with it and found that baked bread tastes better. But there's no market for such a invention in Sweden at that time. So it intrigued me in the sense that it, it's a phenomenal marketing challenge. How do you bring something to the market that nobody knows what it is? And uh, we obviously also very quickly saw all the health benefits with the dietary fibers, its ability to reduce cholesterol, and, and, and add to that versatility. You could do anything you could do with milk, more or less. You could do with our oat milk. So... We started figuring out um, a plan, a go-to-market plan, and, and our, our first idea was to sell it as an ingredient to the food industry so we didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole of building our own brand, which takes time, it's expensive, uh, and has a lot of challenges on its own, right? So uh, uh, that's how we launched, and, and uh, I actually was successful to land a deal with Danon, no less, very quickly. And Danon decided to launch a plant-based yogurt in France. Um, we are now talking 1998, 1999. So I thought that was an easy, you know, next kind of thing. Uh, was a very instrumental learning for us too in, in our uh, journey. Um, we were doing our own yogurts in our lab in, in Sweden and thought they were pretty pretty decent. And then we supplied Danon. Danon taught us how to produce with even quality and sent us in 10 binders, a whole bookshelf of quality manuals that we had to adhere to. That taught us a lot about you know production and scaling production and uh, instrumental learnings, great findings for our future journey. Uh, but uh, when it came to product development and the market positioning, we very quickly realized that Danon, they didn't promote the product on its own benefits. And afterwards, you could clearly realize why they couldn't, of course, uh, launch a non-plant-based dairy that would aggressively sort of go after their dairy alternatives, right? So they had to wash it down. And, and what, what was left was nothing. There was no, really reason, no real reason to buy presented to the market. 
And the, it didn't help that the product actually didn't taste very well either, despite, you know, the Bannon lecturing us on how good they were at consumer testing and um, product development, and, which I guess you could say they arguably they are, right? But what we learned from that was that it's pointless testing new products on consumers. Danon, with all their expertise, experience, and, and money, uh, uh, clearly failed. So well, why even bother when we could sit in a office and realize that it didn't taste good at all so i don't know who they how they managed to fool themselves but uh, after one year in the market massive marketing tv commercials everything they pulled the product from the market uh and and uh, that's when we decided that uh, okay we can't rely on going through others to you know it, we we are the only people on the planet that know understand and know how to present the story so yeah. why should we rely and before we on talk, Yeah. Yeah. And before we kind of talk about what happens after this, I'm curious, kind of going back a little bit, um, you mentioned, you know, you had sold this, this, uh, software company, um, that, and, and, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you were able to get a little cash out of that. Were you like financially free at that point? Like, did you, did you have to worry about money after that point? And, and, and also it's a kind of a two part question, like growing up was, was money tight or was it something that you felt like you had sort of enough of that you could go out and venture on your own and not, you know, take these risks without having too much of a kind of a fallback. I grew up in a very classic sort of Swedish uh, middle-class home. Money wasn't tight, but, uh, you know, we were four brothers. Uh, Both my parents worked. Uh, My dad was uh, in the Swedish defense industry, sort of, you know, engineer. Uh, not very high pay. My mother was a dietitian, nutritionist, working for a hospital. So classic sort of middle class. We lived in a middle class suburb. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess I grew up knowing that money is uh, scarce in some sense. It wasn't that we could buy fancy cars and go on luxury travels all over the world, right? But we we, we were... We had a very loving family, and, and I, I think we, I grew up in a very safe environment. And I thought about that uh, many times in other situations. Maybe my formative years there uh, built some kind of confidence in me that I became not a notorious risk taker. I guess I, I never had to be afraid. <laughs> there was always a home base to take care of me somehow, maybe. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything else maybe you can think of as to why you're that way? Like why you're more prone to maybe taking risks and wanting to be an, an entrepreneur? Maybe like from a younger age, was that something that you sort of set out to do, or did you did it just you know did you just fall into that naturally? I just fell into it. You know, when I went uh, uh, four years in college, I, I had no perception at all of me starting a company until one of the very last presentations in the, you know the last month in college when. They had a class where they talked about, uh, and some of the successful entrepreneurs, um, uh, start early IT uh, entrepreneurs in Sweden at that time, that were graduates from our school, came and presented how they had, you know, journeyed from after leaving college. I was just dead set, like most kids in my part of the world at that time, to go and work for the big, you know, Volvo, Ericsson, Saab the big Swedish industrial complex companies, right? They were all over the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a dozen of them in Sweden, uh, Pack and, you know. But uh, uh, um, when I, I think the light bulbs went on when I, when I heard that and started realizing that, mm, well, that's another alternative. And I guess I always, oh, I don't know why, <laughs> introspective and uh, psychological analyze of yourself but but i always felt in my life as a kid and everything so if everybody goes to the left i turn right it's sort of i don't want to do what everybody else does it's, i don't see any fun and i mean i don't, I don't want to i'm not saying i'm a leader in that sense but i don't want to follow the pack right it's, it's somehow been ingrained in me uh yeah I don't know why. And I love how you mentioned, I love that you mentioned that, you know, sort of zigging when everyone is zagging, right? Like going one way when everyone is yeah. going in another way. And, and, and it's something I think about a lot too, where, 
I, I kind of tend to be the same way, but it is pretty exhausting, right? <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's like you don't, you don't, because there, it's an unknown. It's a big unknown, you know. Yeah. And and if the crowd is is thinking one thing or going in one direction, you know, I, I'm naturally skeptical to be like, oh, you know, what's gonna, what's like the end solution here, and and is there like a better way of doing things or going in another direction? But you never know. Like you could be setting yourself up for failure yeah. at the same time, and so. Is that something that you've had to like grapple with, like personally? Well, like, I think, <laughs> of course, in those times, uh, early days, right? I didn't think about this at all. It was just a natural sort of. I, I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to follow the herd, and I, I guess it came back to the fact that I had a, a, a solid, sort of comfortable platform to stay. I didn't, you know, there was never in my mind that I could fail, right? Or if I would, I would fall, knock down, and fall over. I just you know, stand up and walk, you know, and take another path and walk another direction. It was never, I never had that sort of scare of risk of losing it all kind of thing, right? So I think that helped you build this, uh, helped me build that mindset that um, I can go pretty much try to do anything, right? Well, I might, you know, hit the wall, fall down, but I'll brush it, brush it off and, and keep going. Uh, and, um, uh, it's funny, another aspect here that, that I find interesting is that I'm the youngest of four kids. And I have, over my journey now, I've come across a number of, uh, of uh, entrepreneurs that are always the youngest in a larger family, right? And I think we never have that overprotection as the first kid gets, maybe, nor the expectations that often falls on the shoulders of the the most senior kid. I I don't know. I'd be fun to hear a psychologist comment on that, right? But there is something here. Why is it that there's so many, at least in my myopic world, that I have met among entrepreneurs, very often are the youngest in a in a in a in a cull of a you know in yeah. a family. So somehow, somewhere around there, you know, I I came into the world and I picked my journey and I wanted to go uh, find my own path. I was never, you know, I hitched across when I was, what, 20 years old. I hitched alone across the United States for and Mexico for five months. Very few of my friends that did that. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's... Bjorn, you mentioned earlier that your brother had started kind of experimenting and obviously came up with what we now know as Oatly. And, you know, I would probably say that a lot of people heard about Oatly in the last few years, at least in the United States, or at least where we are in our groups. And obviously it wasn't around for only four or five, six years. It's been around for now 25 plus years or almost 25 years. Um, you know, you mentioned entrepreneurship being, you know, obviously risky and sometimes you just kind of hit some walls. Why did you join him early on? I mean, yeah. At, well, you think about it now, and you think, oh, obviously it's an oat, oat milk company. How it's going to work out? Twenty five years ago, you know, you tell that to my dad, you know, who's now you know sixty five <laughs> years old, and he's thinking, "What's wrong with you? Like, why? Yeah, what, yeah. Like, seriously, what's wrong with you?" I tell you, a lot of people that told me that uh, I should go seek help, professional help. Um, so <clears throat> a couple of fun stories around it, right? But So I built a 10-year rather successful career in computer security, right? We, we, <clears throat> we were very unique in our crypto solutions and sold to all the biggest banks in the world and governments and all that kind of stuff. We were the coolest kids on the block. I mean, we were the shit those days, right? I mean, there was no question about that. <clears throat> and uh, uh, moved to the U.S., <clears throat> merged. Uh, we sold a U.S. company out of Boston. I, they, you know, slept me over there in in uh, chain in in handcuffs and locked me up in a corner office uh, with a fancy, you know, mahogany desk for for a year. It was fun. I had a great time there. But I also the last year before selling, uh, it, I mean, we grew 100 percent. We doubled the size of the company. I was burnt out. I didn't realize that at the time, but I started really when I sat down and the, the work pace dropped dramatically in a public U.S. company. Right? It was just a whole different world from my entrepreneurial world. And I, I just 
started feeling that I want to do something completely different in my life. Now I've been here, done this, right? So, so uh, when I resigned uh, first, I told many others, but but um, I told my CEO that Art, good guy, we had a great contact, that I'm 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 leaving. I'm going back to Sweden. I'm going to work with my brother and his oatmeal company. Because where the term oat milk didn't exist, nobody had ever heard it before, nobody knew what it was. He thought I said goat milk. And he got <laughs> furious, right? What the heck are you doing? You have an incredible career opportunity in this industry. You can do ba 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 ba. And you're gonna go home and milk goats? <laughs> so so uh, Obviously, I explained the true story to it, and, and, and people start gradually, as people learned what it was, got more and more interested. But, but boy, have I ever, you know, on those many years in the beginning, they wondered, what the heck did I do this for? But it was something in this product that we just, you know, we sat there, we drank it, we tasted it, we could, it had legs, you could feel it, you could touch it, you could smell it. It was, there was something in here, right? And, Soy milk started coming up on the market, and I went, I probably in 97, first time I went to Expo West. And so all these soy milk. What year was that, Bjorn? I think 97, could have been 98. And and, uh, went to Expo West and started seeing uh, what were the leading brands at that time, Uh, Eden Soy maybe, and and, uh, West Soy, whatever, right? I don't think most of them don't exists at least not in that shape and form anymore and they all tasted awful in my humble opinion right and they were not anywhere near as versatile and i think the the whole plant-based dairy market in the u.s at that time was probably touching maybe 200 million in in consumer value right so maybe 100 million on on manufacturing level i don't know somewhere around there but it's sort of like Wait a minute, we have a better product. Another, uh, actually, two years earlier, I, I was still in my software company. I was uh, spending time in England. I was setting up our subsidiary in England. And, and uh, uh, my brother came down and actually with his little team, two, three people, and, and uh, were trying to test to get into the UK market. And so they were exhibiting at a food show. I'd never been to a food show before because I only, as a cool kid in the IT industry in those days, I only went to the really cool trade shows, right, where all the cool guys were. And and we learned in that industry when you're in a booth and, and you're presenting your technology, your software, people come in and they have opinions. They, oh, don't worry, we'll fix that. That's just a bug. We can come and that. We have that in our next release. That will come, you know. There was, you could fake it until you made it. it. Still works, I guess, in many ways in that in the in the tech industry, right? Well, try that in the food industry for a starter, right? You know, so I, there was an eye-opening moment for me when I realized that people came into the booth, they actually eat your product or drink it. There is no room for an excuse. Uh, yeah, no, we'll fix that that little taste problem and that bitter aftertaste. Yeah, no, no, we'll, don't worry. That's that's just a bug, right? You get that sort of immediate feedback and immediate reaction from the consumer. And I, I realized that I've been in business to business, and, uh, and and consumer marketing was to me a big unknown, and uh, but intrigued me tremendously. So. Last couple of years in my IT journey, I sort of looked within me more and more at my brothers uh, and the whole food industry just opened up uh, mind-blowing uh, opportunities. And, and so I think uh, at the end of the day, the jump from IT to oat milk wasn't that difficult for me. I was just yeah. totally ready to do something new. And talking about, you know, going back to what you're saying about early on, you wanted to go through different avenues like for example working with a company like Danon who had the distribution that you could sort of sell this product to as an ingredient for them but then seeing that that wasn't a good sort of you know solution for you guys as a business when when you decided to transition into creating your own brand what did that look like i mean did, did was it difficult like getting getting it into the stores like how did you go about doing all that yeah it was a big challenge right it was definitely difficult uh, we had most people, um, I mean, it, it put us also in the perspective of being in, in Sweden at that time. Uh, 
very few food companies out of Sweden. Probably the best best known food, if you can call it food, is absolute vodka, right? Yeah. yeah, and when right. and the plant based sort of people, the people that were into the plant based foods, were they mostly in the U.S. at the time? Well, they were they were they were worldwide. Uh, UK was probably the only market in Europe of some significance, right? But yes, the whole movement started in the U.S. indisputably right. so, no question about it, right? And and so we were in Sweden, where you have much higher per capita consumption of milk. Uh, than the U.S., much lower frequency or prevalence of lactose intolerance than the U.S. We were in a country where milk was holy. I remember when I was a six-year-old, I used to hand milk cows in our, yeah, in our neighbor up in the north. Anyway, that's a long story, but we, we, so the milk was holy. And, and so to come here and try to launch a product on a market where there were no dairy alternatives out there and never, nobody, what do you mean, milk? What's the problem? Yeah. So, so um, it was pretty logical to start looking at an. I mean, we worked with um, a big uh, Unilever on the ice cream side. We worked with, I think it was Nestle. No, well, somebody on the chocolate side, and we worked with Dan on on the yogurt side, and we started seeing opportunities. But you learn a couple of things there, right? You're, you're one step removed from the consumers, you really don't get the consumer feedback. That stays with your customer and they don't share that with you. So you were just like playing in darkness, really have no idea what was going on, right? What we did learn over these first years is that, okay, so we are in Sweden, there's very few references, very few people have started food companies uh, sort of the new modern traditional type of you know branding and, and cool, happy, fancy. You know you could buy Swedish lingonberries and, and salmon and herring and that was kind of it, right? Potatoes. But but to start uh, and, and go after the consumer marketing, nobody's ever done that before. Uh, but what we did ra- learn and realize during these uh, Danon and, and uh, ingredient years is that okay, so we have maybe the well, Sweden is top 10 in, in per dairy consumption. But if you have da- high dairy consumption, there is 2 to 3% of all children that are born, and this is pretty much globally, uh, consistently, are milk protein allergic. That's a very different thing from being uh, lactose intolerant, right? Milk protein allergies, in most cases, disappear after when kids reach the age of somewhere between 7 and 11, 12 or so, right? Some keep it for their entire life, but they're a much smaller group. So you'd say, okay, so a couple of percent of kids, what's the big deal? There's no market there. Well, you know, if you look at the life situation for these children, right, they can't have birthday parties with all their friends and eat the same food. Their parents and their siblings can't eat the same food or uh, rather can't prepare a meal at home using the same pots and pans. And, and you know, it, it becomes a life quality challenge that is pretty significant. So if you can go in and, and help these two, three, four percent kids, it actually touches a much larger, much larger population. And that intrigued us. And that's when we launched Oatly. 2001, our first target audience was families with milk protein allergic children. We got a lot of support from the from you know healthcare providers, from retailers. Oh, finally we have a solution, right? So we could ride sort of a very unique, specific angle to get into a market, and therefore also to to really make a, a, a difference. We realized that we have very early on had to uh, had to have a fairly wide product portfolio. So we launched a milk, we launched a line of ice creams, we launched cooking creams, uh, and a couple of other products, actually, at the same time, day one in 2001. And that helped us carve out the position that was big enough for us to create a small platform that we could you know, crawl up on and finally put up on our knees and uh, build, build, yeah. build. And, 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 and throughout... Throughout this time, were, did you serve as the CEO, or did you have did you hire someone to 
to so I, I was uh, we I didn't know anything about retail and and the, so we hired a CEO to run sort of the operational aspect where my brother and I so I was the chairman of the company I ran all the financing the strategic you know business plan development and had an oversight right but I didn't go and do the well I participated I helped up but I had a a, a guy from the food industry that. Uh, yeah, you know, been a senior executive, as it were, at uh, at the distribution uh, food distribution company. So I never Bjorn, worked I, as a CEO. I, I yeah. Bjorn, you in two thousand and one, you guys were in United States already, correct? Huh. Well, no, we were not. <laughs> so before we we uh, launched the brand Oatly. Uh, so when I joined my brother in '97, and I said I went to Expo West, right? There was this uh, classic story of what happens if you're not controlling your own business, right? So my brother and his team, small underfunded, they founded in- Importer and started doing some business in the UK. Uh, and that British company immediately turned around and tried to sell in the US. So. Uh, we had a brand at the time called Meal Milk, uh, uh, and uh, sort of, you know, together with the partners there, where we were effectively the ingredient supplier into somebody that was trying to do a branded business. The first thing I did when I joined the company was to shut all that down because the company was so far from being ready for it. So I just killed all that and moved out of it because it was just a disaster. But uh, it did trigger two competitors, Pacific and the West. Soy, I guess, to launch oat milks in the U.S., which was kind of interesting because they, the Pacific Oats is still around, but we were first in the U.S. Nobody can ever and take did, that away from us. How <laughs> does it work when? Um, <clears throat> and, and I don't know if, the, like, I mean, maybe you can explain this, but you mentioned, you know, when your brother sort of came up with this and he had the patent. Um, how does it work when other companies try to create something similar? Like, did you have to license it to them or? Was it a different formula, like, for example, other companies that were offering oat milk? So, so uh, well, a good question, right? What we, what we did and the products that ended up in the U.S., we produced them, or we had a co-packer in Sweden that produced everything for us. So there was never a patent infringement. And, but this, what, another really interesting learning here, right? When we started, so, so Oatly is really the world's first true food tech company. It's real science going into it. It's deep science around proteins, enzymes, food processing, uh, and uh, oats, of course. And and uh, not only that, right? My brother, very early in the process, realized that well, oats was already then known to reduce cholesterol. So, you know, Quaker Oats and General Mills made a big number out of that in the U.S. So he wanted to make sure that uh, the oat milk he developed actually maintained, if not, in, you know, optimized the cholesterol-lowering properties of oats. The whole world knew that oats re- <coughs> reduced LDL cholesterol, but the interesting thing is that nobody in the world knew why. So that was sort of a really interesting scientific, you know, uh, um, challenge to understand the components, what's going on. So he started very early on bringing in medical, clinical medical expertise to dive deeper into that. And, and um, so, so, yeah, so, so that's also the background to, you know, how we could then patent a number of processes. It's not one patent, it's a whole bunch of patents. And over the years, it's been added more. But, but this is, I would say, extremely, in, in, in that time, uh, uh, in that period, extremely unique in the food industry that you had actually patents on a food product, right? We had some, uh, so, so the traditional way of developing foods uh, in, in bigger food companies to go to, it's sort of you go to a lab and you blend something, right? You go in the kitchen and you cook something up and you package it, brutally expressed, but, but more or less so. And, and the industry, I'd say, uh, particularly in the U.S. at the time, I think the rest of the world is pretty good at it now, too, is that you have the big companies and they follow trends and they see, okay, there's something happening in this space. So the world, somebody calls down to the guy down in the lab and it's like, okay, I need an oat milk. So, so 
I think the other last piece of tidbit there in the Oakley story is in the early days, already in the early days, we also realized that patents alone is not, it's not enough to have a, the true sort of mode to the, the secret sauce is the, the best possible solution. Any listener here, if you want to get into the food industry, right? If the trinity of patents, a black box, secret something, and a strong brand, if you have those three, you are in an extremely strong competitive position, right? Uh, we didn't have a strong brand at that point. But combining those, we weren't afraid. So no, the, the, the early uh, companies in the U.S. were not infringing our patents. Their products were inferior, and that's why they never took off. They, they couldn't create that oatmeal market. In fact, if anything, we were afraid that they would damage the category because people that tried them didn't like them. And a consumer, uh, you know, oh, oatmeal, have you tried it? Yeah, I tried it a couple of years ago. It tasted blah, blah, right. blah, right? So that was our biggest concern, actually, over the years. That that um, Bjorn, curious, products you know, our opportunity. Go ahead. Th- there's obviously a lot that's happened, you know, since launching Oatly to get to the point that we are today, and we don't have, you know, hours to talk about all the 20 years. I wish we did. But what would you pinpoint as, you know, a breakout moment in time for Oatly? where it became this, you know, widely recognized, known, loved brand that people obviously consume today and I'm sure will for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a great question, right? And, and so we, we launched 2001, very laser focus on a very niche, niche, niche market. Right. And then we started adding to that vegans. There weren't many around in those days, but the, 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 the few that were there were pretty vocal. We started looking at the cholesterol aspect. So that didn't really do much for us, but it was in there. And as you get a little bigger, you add more products, you can add more rope in more people. The classic sort of bowling pin strategy, the bowling pin alley, right? You, you, you sort of take knock over the first ones and then you get some ripple effects and you go broader and broader. And if you look at the history of our packaging, you can follow sort of that evolution, right? And I think by 2011, 2012, when we started hitting maybe around 20 million in sales or so, that's when we started realizing that we had gotten enough inertia recognition that we, we could go mainstream which is a whole different ballgame, right? And that's where we realized that we needed to completely um, the, uh, rebuild our management team, for example, because we, we had a, a, good, a bunch of good people that understood niche marketing and, and whatnot. But to go broad mass market, it, it, it's just a whole different ballgame, right? And so we rebuilt the company, brought in a whole new set of senior managers that, that we handpicked and they all of them came from outside of the food industry because we realized that in in you know in apparel in in you know uh, in electronics and and whatnot that you had much more skills in terms of understanding how to engage with consumers uh, and what year was that what year was that around that you're you're talking about in terms of hitting 2012 2012 okay so uh, that's when we brought the, the new t- Tony, our new CEO, on board. He joined late 2012. He had a very deep insights into consumer behavior and cons- understanding consumers from his various uh, experiences in the past. Right, none of them really, including CPG sort of tactics. And, and I think till still today, I'm surprised how, how poor most CPG companies really are at marketing. They are actually awful at it, and which. Is surprising in many ways, right? But uh, uh, so uh, I think that was the first step there to get another team that actually understood mass market because we had come to a position and we were really only in two markets at that time, Sweden and England, United Kingdom. And we were sort of revving up. The other thing that was a pivotal breakthrough for Oakley, a dramatic uh, milestone in the history of Oakley was that we, Finally, 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 after years of research, managed to develop a product that worked extremely well in coffee. 
Uh, we've been trying the coffee market for years. And the reason is simple. If you look at global white milk consumption, and I forgive me, I don't have the numbers fully accurate in front of me now, but, but I think somewhere between 60 and 70% of all white milk consumed globally is consumed in tea or coffee. So wow. if you want to have a big impact, you need to function uh, in tea or coffee. Uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, we our first iterations of products didn't do that to the level where it was really an alternative that uh, baristas would embrace. Um, in 2014, we cracked the code, a completely new uh, set of patents, and, and um, you know, the, the idea is to work with no other. In the food industry, there's another secret if you like it's not secret but but you can do anything with food uh, as long as you you know you can add anything you play with additives and you can do you can you know create anything out of anything right but consumers don't want additives mm. so and our philosophy was just the pure oats and water that's it right so it's a question of enzymatically modifying protein structures for example in a way that is very or that is identical to how it's done in the human inside the human body. So no, no strange, no, no um, hokey pokey here, but but really uh, true, tried, natural processing steps. Um, and um, so we had a new team on board that understood consumer branding, and all of a sudden we're sitting with a product that uh, was ready to go after the mass market in a whole new way. What we learned in the development of the barista version was also that uh, we were hitting a market where there was uh, a big hole in the market. If you talk to the high-end baristas and coffee roasters uh, in those days, uh, and, and indeed still today, I would argue, they, uh, uh, I heard a story from one guy uh, very eloquently described it, how he, as a coffee roaster, spent a good time of his life sourcing the best beans he could possibly find, right? And then it'll bring them home to his roasting facility, wherever that is, and spend, you know, his soul and passion in producing the best coffee you could probably possibly pour in a cup and serve that with pride in your coffee shop. And the damn consumer wants almond milk in it. That kills all the notes. Which, you know, why did I do all this work? if you don't appreciate my flavor. So we learned that there's a big demand for a plant-based alternative to milk that married the coffee notes, not killed them. There was no product in the market that did that. That's so, super interesting. And, and at the time, were you in the U.S. at all? Or you're still, no. You were still in only England and Sweden? Well, at this still time, in, we're probably in maybe 10, 15 countries, countries in too. Europe. Yeah, we grab, so, uh, in at what Europe. point? At what point do you guys uh, expand out to the U.S. and what was that like? Because it was it was just I think like a few months ago or like earlier this year that you guys ended up going or Oatly ended up going public and it was a it was a massive IPO. You know, I think one and a half billion dollars or so. Almost. Ten billion. Um, and so, how, how how big? Ten billion. Oh, ten billion. I, I must have read some article that was inaccurate. Uh, thanks for that. Ten billion. In, insane, right? And so, like, you would have had to have I, I would assume a pretty big market base or like consumer base in the US, right? And so what point did you come, you know, expand out here and, and what was that launch well, like? So, so um, when we uh, gradually, we, we launched in the US in the fall of 2016 at the uh, New York Coffee Show. Uh, maybe I have a different name, but yeah, some more or less. Coffee exhibition, whatever. And, and we launched it uh, to go after the coffee trade because we have learned from Europe that we could take Berlin, we could take Amsterdam, we could take London, we could take all the big cities with our product, with our coffee concept. And we could, we also learned very early on that the, the high-end barista world is actually quite small and it's global. You have the world championship for, you know, uh, cupping and, and uh, latte art and all that stuff. So these sort of leading trend-setting baristas and coffee roasters globally met yearly and they talk and 
we could ride and use that to our benefit and, and let them do the selling for us in many ways, right? And if you look at the coffee industry, it's actually quite a, you know, you have to, Australia has a huge impact on, on trends in the coffee industry, as have the US West Coast and Japan. And, and yeah, so there's a couple of pockets, and if you can win there, the rest of the world will follow. The other aspect that we learned too very early on was that the consumers in these trend-setting third-wave coffee shops globally were, you know, the young, sort of the 15 to 30 maybe crowd. And they had much more in common with each other across the globe than they had with their parents, for example. So we learned very early from our tests in, in various European cities that exactly the same message very often, we actually use English as the language, which everybody thought was a big no-no. You don't promote products using English language in Berlin or, or Hamburg or, or Helsinki or whatever, but Amsterdam. But it worked extremely well for us the way we did it. Uh, so, so all these, you know, uh, stars just aligned, and it was more a question of um, uh, building a, a launch plan for the U.S. Where, because the biggest challenge is, of course, how do you handle supply, right? It really is not ideal to ship products from Europe because you lose time on the water. And, and, and um, in order to succeed in the U.S., you really need to be a refrigerated product, and therefore you have to produce locally. So they have a really uh, um, challenge, uh, challenging upfront sort of investment in building production capacity that you had to be, you know, it, it's a big factor. And how, how the heck do you do that, right? And so we spent a lot of time and uh, some fun times, 2015, 2016, as we scoped out the U.S. Uh, launch plan. And um, we, uh, we did an exclusive with the Intelligentsia for three months. In, in uh, uh, So, you know, there had basically there core business was in Chicago of all places. So I don't know how many successful new food tech companies build their platform by launching in Chicago. It is usually <laughs> always, you know, LA or, or, or LA. Florida or New York, right? But that was for three months and, and uh, that helped us get going and, and uh, Intelligentsia, you know, very good quality company and, and a lot of people follow them. And 2017... One of the founders... As one of the founders of Oatly, how involved were you and are you currently uh, in Oatly's uh, business and operations? Well, so up until uh, 2000, uh, so 2015, 2016, I spent a lot of time uh, here in the U.S. and, uh, you know, developed the regional plants. And then 2016, we took in external funding, uh, major, uh, how much did we raise? In our world, a big funding around 35 million or so, US 30 million maybe. I don't remember exactly now. So that was, uh, I, I, that was my big project that year. And, and uh, uh, after that, I've had less of an active role. Uh, I'm on the board, so, you know, I'm involved in all kinds of fun kind of conversations. The whole IPO took a, a lot of resources from, all of our board members, right? Or we spent a lot of time on that, and and uh, been involved uh, up until then in in uh, many of the conversations we've had when we raised funding, uh, raised money on the on the along the road. Today, I'm I'm very uh, distanced from the actual operational side of the business. Do you miss it? Well, yes and no. It's such a big company now, right? With production in three continents and, you know, I don't know, 1,500 employees or whatever. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a different animal. Uh, uh, but I, I, I would say this. I'm involved enough not to miss it. I, I, I can cherry pick more than anything, which is great. I have a very good connection with the, you know, the board and the senior management team. We have fun. We had a lot of fun. But I also, ever, you know, since 2008, my brother and I have built a separate business uh, uh, because we, what we did, we realized in those earlier days that we, we had this incredible R&D team um, that was all involved in, in Oatly. But 
we could do so much more than just develop products in in uh, in the oat space, right? And we've been very intrigued by and still are and, and do a lot of work with trying to develop food products that deliver true health benefits. So learning on the early days of the cholesterol reduction, Oatly is really good at reducing LDL cholesterol. It's extremely potent about it, right? Um, and, and that led us into the whole metabolic syndrome and started looking at uh, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, of course, with cholesterol, and, and then, um, uh, you know, yeah, all kinds of stuff going on in that world in the, and around diabetes research and Alzheimer and, and um, et cetera, like cognitive function. So... We built in parallel with building Oatly since 2008. We built this uh, it's a company called Aventure, which is a research company based in the south of Sweden. We have operations on pretty much all continents now: Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, we are in India. We are in uh, Africa. We are in South America. And that you know, small footprint, but stay close to stuff where things happen and sourcing exotic ingredients, whether it's baobab from Africa or quinoa or, or growing oats in Bolivia at uh, 12,000 feet above sea level. Um, we, we, you know, we create, co-created a company that mapped the oat genome uh, two years ago, published that in, well, three years now, 2018. Uh, and uh, behind me on the show... Sure, I'm curious, yeah. actually. You know, you, you've built this incredibly successful company, Oatly, right? And 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 so and and I'm just curious, what is like? Is do you have like an uh, an ultimate goal you want to reach, like with everything that you're doing? Like, is there? Because I, I can imagine, like, being in your position, like you could just like chill and hang out right now, right? Like you you built this company, yeah. it's gone public. That's what like, he's doing why? with us. That's yeah. what he's I doing mean, with us. <laughs> I mean, this is this is one hour of the day, but it sounds like I don't know how much you know time you're like. Spending, you know, across all these different projects and R and D, you know, you know, things. I, I know, I know that you have good idea drinks, which I see, uh, good idea behind you, which we could talk yeah. about too. But you know, th- there's a lot going on, I, I, I imagine. And so, what keeps you going? Like, what is is there like an ultimate goal that you haven't hit yet that you want to hit? Like, what is that, or is it? Do you just like enjoy building things and doesn't really? Well, it's very much the latter, right? I want to have fun. Uh, I want to. My, my goal is to simplify my life, and that's really that's a bigger challenge in many ways than <laughs> so much else. But I think in some ways, when I sold my software company and and, and that time before joining my brother i could have sort of retired and i, I did for a while and, and the first couple of years i worked with my brother I, I was fairly passive i had actually a golden really uh cool opportunity my kids are born in 2001 and 2003 so those first years i did maybe work only half time and, and more, more in the strategic, so I could cherry pick and do the real fun stuff with my brother and Oakley. Make sure we had a, a management team that ran the operations, but then work on the strategic level and spend a lot of time at home with my kids. But but I, what I've learned too is that I want to have fun, and what's fun is work with young, bright kids and I coach them and help them go places. And I realized that I have over the years built a lot of experience that, you know, to me, things, so many things seem obvious, but when I sit down and share my thoughts and ideas with, with young entrepreneurs, magic happens, right? I learn from them, and, and I realize I can teach them a lot. And, and um, so, I mean, retired to do what, you know? Bjorn, I just want to play devil's advocate for a moment here, and... Um even though I agree every, with everything you're saying, I think that you know some listeners may be thinking, well, we want to have fun too, right? We want to have a career where we're having a good time doing it. We're working on projects that we enjoy and working with people that we like and respect and trust. But a lot of times people, unfortunately, don't have that luxury of fun because at times, you know, you need to make money. Right. And so and not at times, a lot of times, especially living in the United States and with how expensive things are and, you know, feels like inflation's at an all time high. You know, money is a key factor in people's lives. So as an experienced entrepreneur, you know, what is your advice for folks listening now that, you know, need to make money, but also 
have a good time doing it. Huh. If I had the answer on that, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a very good question, and I, I realize as you ask me, right, that in, in many ways I've been extremely fortunate. I've been able to for the last thirty-five years to do what I want to do, and and uh, it's been enough. Are those dogs destroying the recording? Yeah, I'm. I'm used to those dogs barking all day at work. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> somebody has walked into the door. Anyway, right. so so I realized that that um, I've been very fortunate in that sense, right? I've been able to do a lot of what I want to do, and as I've gotten more experience in season, I can sort of delegate off the routine work. Um, it's obviously difficult for anyone to end up in that situation but but and, and we're all different too we value different things in life right i actually never cared about money i never sought to you know it's never interested me in, in fancy stuff what really interests me in my family is travel for example meeting people and travel i could you know if i was to retire i would probably just do that right and, and, and experience and go and help people and, and, and uh, engage in, 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 you know, I've actually just been taking uh, a class. I don't know if you know about Team Rubicon. It's a really interesting organization founded mm-hmm. originally by veterans here in the U.S. that do disaster relief pro- projects. And, and uh, it's fascinating to watch these people. I spent three days with some really fascinating people this just last weekend here and you know, learning about uh, disaster uh, recovery and whatnot, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Um, what are your what way are your to favorite pay forward? To travel? Um, what are your favorite places to travel, or where have you been that is your favorite? Well, I think I, I would say so. The, the, my favorite places to travel are the places I haven't been to. <laughs> okay, the ones that you have been to. Uh, what are your top three? Is it is it possible to have a top three? I uh, it's it's no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, there's different aspects of everything, right? I I never been to Latin America until just two years ago uh, when I started traveling to um, for a period of time. I served on a board of a company in Peru, so I got to travel to Lima and and see. And now I've been down to Argentina and Uruguay. Um, my God, it's spectacular countries, right? Fascinating. And then you see. Argentina, it's a completely dysfunctional society, but the people are awesome and the country is spectacular, but such a sad <laughs> situation. But, but you know, love to go there, love to travel there. I have yet to see Africa south of Sahara. I've been to Northern Africa a number of times, but never south of Sahara, and I want to do that. And ideally, my wife and I talk a lot about that. We can tie this with, with interesting projects. So I mentioned briefly, we, we, one of our research projects in, in Adventure is actually working with, uh, uh, we have a kick-ass scientist from Sudan that trained in Sweden, and we're working on some very, very exciting products using uh, Baobab, the uh, upside-down tree, very well-known mm-hmm. from the movie Madagascar, right? Very big mm. fruits, very nutritious, really hard to do anything useful with. And if you can drive up the value and come up with, you know, high value Baba products, that there, there's, <laughs> you could help develop societies down there. You could change societies, right? Same right. thing we're doing, the work we're doing in Bolivia with, with farmers in, in the Alto Plano region, 12,000 feet above sea level, where there are now a bunch of farmers that are happily growing Swedish oats and selling and making money. And, and uh, so I think the more time, uh, the more the older I get and the more you know, sort of helping growing and developing people in, in, uh, in third world countries is something I really would like to spend more time with in the future. Bjorn, when I look back to the story that you just told us and obviously just, you know, prior knowledge of Oatly and your work, it's very clear that, you know, some of the things that you value are, you know, obviously having a mission, right? Having a purpose for yeah. the work that you do and having that purpose be a part of the companies that you've built. 
And secondly, you know, just having a good time doing it. And I think the answer to that original question while I was thinking about it was that perhaps needing to make money, you know, that's never going to change, right? People always oh, aspire to, to do that. You need to survive, yeah. Oh, right, everybody needs it. But at the end of the day, I think those that eventually win, right, not everybody, but a lot of those that end up winning and being successful are working for a long time perhaps on things that they do enjoy, things that they are passionate about, things that do fulfill their so-called purpose, whatever that purpose may be. And perhaps that's the main takeaway here is that, you know, pursue things, you know, with purpose as opposed to maybe passion, right? And yeah. who knows, you might, you know, you might yeah, be successful, I, you might not, but I, you know, you'll I, be I, happy I, at the end of the day. You know, I, I have part of having fun is I get to speak to a lot of students at universities and, and, and different places, right? And, and it's really fun to see their eagerness and excitement in the eyes of these young students. But I think for me, my, my biggest uh, message to everybody is to lead with your heart, right? It, it's really, uh, it's exactly what you were just saying, really. It's don't go and take a job because it's better paid than somewhere else, right? Right. Because you you're just burning the candle both ends. It's it's mm-hmm. you're gonna end up sorry because it's yes we need money we need subsistence we need to eat and you know send kids to school and pay the doctor's bills. But uh, I, I, again, I came back to some of these people that are uh, that I met in this class now the, the Team Rubicon uh, event. Some of them have absolutely no money, but they're really happy, grounded people that are dedicating their life to helping others because they're passionate about it, right? And you know what? Passion in people is contagious. When you see people that are passionate about something, it's like ah, you want to follow those people. You want to be yep. with them. You want to play, you know, you want them close, right? Uh, yep. and, and that is so true in work life, too. Of course, right? If if you don't have fun going to work and, you know, you don't like your colleagues and it's, you know, infighting and politics and all that stuff, well, there is a door and it's your choice. Go out there because there's so much to do in the world, right? And there's so many opportunities. And, and unfortunately, there are a good number of people that are also stuck in this whole prestige and, and you know, and you have yeah. to do that. You have to, you know, because it's expected of you, right? You're a victim of others' expectations and maybe yep. to a certain extent your own expectation. But, you know, yeah, uh, very seldom uh, you see people that are happy and lucky mm-hmm. and you know, succeed in that space. Well, Bjorn, you know, you've obviously had an incredible journey. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people that when I first heard about, it was actually at, an Expo West event that I learned about all these nut milks. I, I, I don't. I know Oatly was there, and there was, you know, the almond milks. There was the pistachio milks, the cashew milks, and I'm going like every other booth seemed like it was, you know, a plant based milk. And I'm trying these things. Some of them were good. Some of them were not as good. But I was thinking to myself, like, why ruin a good thing? You know, <laughs> in the beginning, that's what I was thinking. I was like, milk is fantastic. Why would anybody want to ruin it? And then over time, you know, you kind of try it again. It's like you try it again. It gets a little better. And then now you just see that every single household, it's become a household product, right? Like we have oat milk and almond milk in our house, but we don't have real milk. You know, we prefer the taste. We put it, like you said, in the coffees and our smoothies, whatever. And so what you guys have done clearly over the past 25 plus years, which people didn't realize, of course, is that you built an incredible product that's changed the way people consume a product that they've known since the beginning of time. Yeah. So, you know, I, that that's just well, an incredible. I'll challenge, I'll challenge you on that, on the beginning of time, right? It's actually, that's another hour we could talk about that. But <laughs> the, the way we drink milk, dairy cow milk today, is, is not, it's new to human mankind, right? Interesting. started in, in the 1930s because before then we didn't have refrigeration and we didn't know how to pasteurize things. So what did the farmers do with their milk in the good old days? Well, to preserve it, they made butter, they make yogurt, and they made cheese. Drinking milk was very rare. Uh, and, you know, the, the bacteria on the, under the cow and everything is, is actually quite healthy. Associated with quite a 
risk to drink cow milk fresh out of the cow. Uh, I think uh, certain regions, there's some interesting, I, I can go on and on for hours, but, but very quickly, the Northern well, no, Europe. I, appre I appreciate yeah. that correction. Yeah, Northern Europe has the long, uh, among the lowest prevalence of, of uh, lactose intolerance, right? The, the normal human is designed to be lactose intolerant. It's the normal way to signal to the human that, okay, it's time to wean you off your mother's breast. Right, so that's the normal way, and then we have seen pockets of of the humans all over the planet that had, it's one gene, you know, it's a simple uh, uh, change in your d DNA, and and uh, so the so the good old Darwin is survival of the fittest. If you lived in the harsh climate in northern Europe and could consume milk when you were really starving, you had a leg up over your competitors. Right, same thing with French for for example, with the Maasai in Eastern Africa, they're lactotolerant. Who would have thought? Isn't that interesting? Surrounded by tribes that are not. Mm -hmm. and, and the list goes on. You can find that in different yeah. parts of the world, right? So, mm -hmm. so um, but, but uh, the notion that the dairy industry likes to sell to us consumers that milk is something we have consumed in big volumes forever is so far from the truth. It is not true at all, right? And in fact, uh, we have had in the 1930s, the Western world spent a lot of time educating its population. In Sweden, they had something called the milk propaganda. It was actually the name where they did TV commercials. Well, TV it was in the movie theaters at that time, right? You went to see the black and white movies. And they, sorry, they, uh, uh, they trained people that it's actually okay to drink milk. Because the normal reaction among the population was that, no, you don't drink milk. Yes, yogurt, yes, cheese, right? Butter, but, but not drink milk. So it's very interesting how, how it's turned around to be sort of, oh, but we've always done it so far from the yeah. truth. Well, Bjorn, this has been a really, really enjoyable conversation. Um, I, I learned a lot, and I, I'm sure everyone listening did too. And uh, we can't thank you enough for spending your time with us, uh, you know, your evening, sharing your story and wisdom and all the best, you know, to you moving forward. I mean, you're obviously there's so much more exciting things to do. And we're excited to see, you know, the impact that you continue to make on, on the world. And uh, yeah, uh, pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, yes, guys. Thank you, it's a pleasure talking to you.